All right. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 5, where the text is right there on your screen, on the next page of the liturgy. So, um, we're continuing in this vision that began in chapter 4, John's Trinitarian vision of heaven that uh, that started that we looked at last week in chapter 4 and Jesus has called John up in the spirit to the heavenly temple to the glorious throne of the holy sovereign faithful creator that's sort of the the main emphasis that we see in uh, chapter 4 is that he's the creator and he's surrounded by thrones and angelic beings who are declaring his praise And chapter 4 really sets the stage now for chapter 5, moving from talking about God as a creator to him as our redeemer. And chapter 5 really is the crux of the whole book of Revelation. Uh, This chapter is about the ascension of Jesus to God's throne. It's the ascension of the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and uh, his taking his place at God's right hand in order to exercise God's own authority from from God's own throne. And the whole book of Revelation sort of flows from this new cosmic reality. Now we could say that Revelation is the sequel to John's gospel, which recorded the earthly life and death and resurrection of Jesus in one of the other gospels, in Luke's gospel, and in Luke's sequel to his gospel in the book of Acts, Luke talks about Jesus' ascension from the earthly perspective. You get language like, well, we saw him go up, 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 and away into heaven until a cloud took him from our sight. John's gospel includes no such account, no such earthly account, but in Revelation, we have his vision of Jesus' ascension from the heavenly perspective. It was a bit after the fact, but John was given a vision of the moment when God and his angels received the Messiah in heaven. And really the whole book from here on out is an exploration and an exposition of this new reality of the heavenly rule of the ascended Lord Jesus. So it's a few weeks uh, before Ascension Sunday, uh, technically, but we've got an Ascension passage here, so it'll be an Ascension sermon. So, um, so let me pray and we'll read the passage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you gave to John this vision of yourself in glory, and you instructed him to pass this vision along to us so that we can know you, so that we can be lifted up and encouraged in our knowledge of you, so that we could share your life and become more like you. So we pray that you do this work in us by your spirit and by your word now. We pray not in our own name, but in your name. Amen. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. Or to look into it. 
and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to bless it, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, you've probably heard the ancient stories of King Arthur. Uh, those legends. Uh, King Arthur and his knights of the round table. <clears throat> uh, I love the old Disney animated version, The Sword and Stone. You can see it on Disney+. Plus. <clears throat> uh, the Sword, uh, Excalibur is the name of it. It was the symbol of the king's rule. And at the beginning of this story, it was plunged hilt deep into a giant boulder so that no one could move it. And the legend was that whoever could pull the sword from the stone would prove himself to be the lost son of the true king and therefore the rightful heir of the, the kingdom. So it seemed pretty straightforward. This was a task to be accomplished by main force. It made sense that only the strongest man with the biggest muscles would be able to full, pull uh, free the sword from the stone. <clears throat> but all the biggest, burliest men in the land, uh, they tried. They couldn't make the sword budge, not even a little, not in that rock. <clears throat> there was only one who would be found worthy, the true son and the true king. And the big surprise is when a wimpy, clumsy little nobody comes along and draws the sword from the stone. And the people rally around their king. And the story continues sort of beyond what the Disney version records there. Um, Arthur rules with a different kind of power. He doesn't exalt himself. He treats others as his equals. And thus, his knights sit together with him at a round table. And of all kings, he's most beloved by his people. So in this legend, and in many other myths and legends and stories... There are clear echoes of the great true story of the gospel that we find in the Holy Scriptures. 
since the creation of the world, God has held forth in his right hand the symbol of his own power and authority. That's what we have in the beginning of this, this chapter in this vision. God holding forth in his right hand the symbol of his own power and authority. He created humanity to exercise his own dominion over all that he's made. To rule justly and wisely as kings and queens in his image. And to cultivate the whole earth into a temple like heaven as priests would. God made humanity to be kings and priests. But in our sin, we've rejected and we've forfeited his purposes. We've abdicated and defrocked ourselves of his glory. But his promises stood for long ages. And that right hand of his still held forth that symbol of the rule of his kingdom. Not a sword, not like Excalibur, but a scroll in which is contained his own will, his own judgments, one day to be taken up by humanity when humanity is found worthy. The history of redemption that we find in the scriptures is the history of God at work to recreate humanity, to make a new humanity that will be worthy, to reign as kings and priests in his image and even in his presence and on his own throne. It's the story of Abraham and his family called out of the old families of humanity to become a new family, a new people. It's the story of Israel brought out of the land of Egypt to become, as it says in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's the, the story of David, whose lost line would produce the true son, the true king who rules from an eternal throne. The history of redemption is the history of God's promises that are fulfilled in ways that we never would have expected. As we think, Old Abraham and his wife, Sarah, couldn't possibly have children at their age. We would look for workarounds when Sarah seemed barren. We would never believe that God could deliver Israel from the terrible enslaving might of Egypt. We think the burliest man in the land should rule. We think Saul would make a good candidate for kingship. He's the kind of guy who could draw the sword from the stone, surely. David, pff, ha, he's just the shepherd boy. For long ages, even God's people who were chosen to become new failed the measure of worthiness because they didn't believe God's ways. They didn't understand God's ways. They didn't embrace God's ways. They didn't look to execute God's ways. They couldn't be entrusted with the rule of his kingdom. And so for long ages, no one was able to take up that scroll in his hand, to open it, to break its seals, to look into it, and to begin to execute God's rule upon the earth as the true king, because no one was ever found worthy. <clears throat> in John's vision here of the throne temple, the question is asked by a mighty angel with a loud voice in verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And there's silence. No one in heaven. No saints. No one on earth. No one under the earth. No human. No one from the people of Israel. 
dead or alive, not even a mighty angel is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. No one was found worthy to take up the will of God and the symbol of his authority and begin to reign and restore the kingdom of God on the earth. <clears throat> N.T. Wright asks a really good question in his little commentary on this. Uh, he begins with a sort of a, a story or illustration. He says, we stood and stared at the letter as it lay on the doormat. It was a smart envelope, good quality paper with clear, bold, typewritten name and address. And at the top, in even larger letters, we saw the words, to be opened by addressee only. And the addressee was not at home. We hardly dared touch it. But supposing the envelope had said, to be opened by the person who deserves to do so. Uh, that's a good question that he asks. How do we even know who's worthy? How do we even know? How can we judge who's worthy? I used to think I was worthy of great things. Maybe you've thought, well, I'm smart, I'm strong, or I'm disciplined, or I'm, I'm charismatic, I'm influential, I'm a good leader. I come from a good family, or I'm a good person. Make no mistake, God knows who is worthy. The scriptures make it clear that we can't even judge or recognize who is truly worthy. God alone is judge. And he says no one was found worthy to inherit his kingdom, which means God's plans for humanity were stillborn. There would be no one to restore humanity to its intended glory. There would be no king to execute true justice in the earth. There would be no priest to renew us in communion with God, to carry us into God's presence. And John knows that this is a real cause for lament, so he weeps until one of the elders, one of the angels there, said to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here John perks up. He knows that this one, if he really can do it, if he really has conquered and he really is worthy and he can open the scroll and its seals, then this one will be the answer to all the mysteries. This one will be the fulfillment of all the promises and the solution to all the problems. He remembers the promise of long ago from Genesis 49, which Bill read in our Old Testament reading, that Judah, the tribe of Judah, is a, a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this king would be this, this lion of the tribe of Judah, and he would rule all the peoples. Even more specifically, he would come from the lost line of David, as it, um, it says in many places in the Old Testament. Uh, but in Isaiah 11, it talks about the anointed one, the Christ. It says that the spirit of the Lord would be upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, true wisdom, divine understanding. The spirit of counsel and might, the one who would, he, he would judge with God's own righteous judgment. And he was called the root of Jesse who would stand as a signal for all the peoples. So this one, he's not only the true son of David, he's the root of David's father. He's the one from whom true kingliness comes. 
He's the one who is the pattern for true kingship. And here, in John's vision, this one has come forth in the heavenly temple to the throne of the Almighty, the only one God has judged worthy to renew the vision of his kingdom. And when John looks, it's like all the townspeople turning to see the sword being pulled from the stone by little wimpy Arthur. (laughs) We're expecting this fierce lion. But when we turn, we see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. We never would have guessed what true worthiness would look like in a human being until God pointed it out in his son, Jesus, the lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world by being faithful and true, even to death on the cross. God raised this worthy lamb from the dead and welcomed him into heaven. And as the heavenly song goes, he is worthy because he was slain. He's worthy to rule as king of heaven and earth. He's worthy to execute God's own judgments, to take the scroll and open it and do what it says. He's worthy to serve as great high priest because of his willingness to die for his people, to share his worthiness with his unworthy people. This is what the angels sing in verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth Jesus is worthy because at great cost to himself he shares his worthiness with his unworthy people He shares in his inheritance with us by his blood on the cross. Jesus redeemed people who were unworthy of reigning in God's kingdom. And he made them a kingdom and priests to reign with him. So again, N.T. Wright says that the lamb is being praised not just for rescuing us, but for turning us from hopeless rebels into useful servants from sin slaves into a kingdom and priests, from rubbish into royalty. So Christ's rule is different. He does not just exalt himself. He's the true Arthur at his round table. He shares the inheritance of his kingdom with others, even though we don't deserve it. And this is what makes Jesus worthy to be the great high king worthy to be the great high priest, worthy to take the scroll from the Father, worthy to sit with his Father on the throne, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, worthy even to share the praise that belongs to God himself. Jesus is God in the flesh and therefore worthy of divine praise. But Jesus is also God in the flesh. He's fully human. And as such, he receives the the same praise that comes to God. And the ascension means now, finally and forever, a human being has been found worthy of the glory for which God created humanity in the first place. Jesus has fulfilled God's purpose for humanity. He has fulfilled God's purpose for Israel 
He's fulfilled God's purpose for the Davidic king. By his blood, he has redeemed our humanity. He hasn't just taken his humanity to the throne. He's taken our humanity there in union with himself. And our first response is the very same one we see happening here in heaven when all creatures everywhere and hundreds of millions of angels begin crying out praise and falling down before him in worship. And we take heart that we worship the true king of Israel, not just of the ethnic people of Israel. He is that, but he's, he's the true king of the world, of Israel as it was meant to be, a representative of a new and renewed humanity that's made up from people of every tribe, language, people, and nation. <clears throat> we don't take pride in knowing that we've made a good choice of kings. We're terrible judges of worthiness. We crucified him when he came, the only worthy one. Instead, we take comfort in knowing the king that God has found worthy, the king who's made himself known to us by his word and by his spirit, by his grace. We're reassured that since our king had the victory in his humiliation, in his faithful suffering and in, in his death, when we face such things, it's victory for the faithful in his kingdom. We understand soberly that our king is worthy of rule because of his sacrifice of love, and that therefore, if we're to rule with him, we must rule like him. We respond to our king's command to go forth in his name and make disciples of all peoples, to bring all peoples to a knowledge of him, to call all peoples to acknowledge him as the true king with joy. And we rejoice and we're glad even when enemies treat us the same way they treated, treated Jesus because it is our chance to serve as kings and priests in the world, to love our enemies in the name of Christ, praying for their forgiveness, even as he did. We find true justice in the king's name. We find true reconciliation and peace in the king's name. And this vi vision reveals that these things, justice and reconciliation and peace, truly, can only be found in the name of the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, the ascended Lord Jesus. But they certainly can be found in him because he has been found worthy by the one seated upon the throne, worthy to take up God's own authority and begin to reign forever. So let me, uh, <clears throat> as we get to the end here, let's, I'm going to close with one of my favorite quotes from Karl Barth on this as he considers this line, which is in the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is, means it's central to our faith and doctrine and, and uh, life. Uh, this line, it's, it's a turning point in the Apostles' Creed. Karl Barth says this, He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The summit has been reached. The perfect tenses or the past tenses lie behind us. And we enter the realm of the present. That is what we have to say of our time. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is the first and the last thing that matters for our existence in time. At its basis lies this existence of Jesus Christ, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father. 
whatever prosperity, whatever defeat may occur in our space, whatever may become and pass away, there is one constant, one thing that remains and continues. This sitting of his at the right hand of God the Father. There is no historical turning point which approaches this. Here we have the mystery of what we term world history, church history, history of civilization. Here we have the thing that underlies everything. <clears throat> if this is true, then the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything. If it's true, then no matter how your day seems to be going, uh, his good rule is absolutely definitive of every moment of your life. If this is true, and it is, by God's grace, then your whole life is one great opportunity to respond to your king, to love him and praise him and become like him as he shares his inheritance and his own worthiness, his rule with you. Our brother is Lord. That's the first and last and only thing that matters. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, these truths about Christ, that he is the Lamb of God, that he is one standing as if slain, because he was slain, and yet he is standing because you raised him from the dead and he is standing in your presence and he is at your very right hand on your very throne with you. These truths are um, the most wonderful things that anyone could ever hear. We pray that um, we would never take these things for granted, that your spirit would always keep us tender toward your gospel and sensitive to the matters of the gospel that our hearts would always be lifted up and encouraged to know that our brother is Lord and that he has shared his inheritance with us. We pray that you would help us to know what it means for us to increasingly live as our brother and our king lives, to rule as he rules, which means to sacrifice as he has sacrificed, to love and lay down our lives as he has done so. We pray that you would not only teach us these things, but keep our eyes fixed on Christ so that by the power of your spirit, it is his life that comes alive in our lives. That it's not just an imitation, but that the, the life of God, the life of Christ, the spirit of Christ would fill us up to live and rule like Christ and with Christ forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.